So we're going to be reading tonight two passages from Philippians. So we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and we're then going to read a, um, the passage from chapter 4 that we're going to be looking at tonight. So chapter 2, verse 1 to start. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. And then we're going to move on to chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 2 through 2 um, to 9. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you very much, Sarah. And let me add my welcome. If I don't know you, my name's Roger and I'd love to get to know you afterwards. Do come up and say hello. Um, And likewise, if there are questions from what we say tonight, I'd love to um, chat about those. Uh, But let me say, it is an absolutely wonderful passage to be looking at tonight. This is one of those purple passages that some people will know by heart. Some people will have found this a hugely encouraging place to turn. Um, But the first time it was read, it must have been an absolute shocker. must have just been a jaw-dropping moment in church. Have you ever had one of those social occasions? It might be a wedding or a family gathering or a work team. One of those situations where everyone knows 
that so-and-so don't get on. Don't sit them next to each other on the table plan. Don't put them on the same committee. They don't see eye to eye. It turns out one of the key relationships in the church in Philippi had become a bit like that. These two women, Yodia and Syntyche, two of the prominent women in the church, they'd served the gospel alongside Paul and they'd fallen out. And everyone knew it. Or at least everyone knew it once chapter 4 of Philippians had mentioned it. But I think they probably already knew it. Just imagine that. I considered doing a Chalmers version, like naming two women in the church, but I thought everyone would be so distracted about, is there something going on? That I decided I couldn't even risk it, hypothetically. But here's, here's Paul. I mean, it's an exciting day in the Philippian church. Local hero, Epaphroditus, is back. He's back with news from Paul. In fact, a whole letter from Paul. And they start reading it out, and there's loads of encouraging stuff about Jesus and how Paul is doing better than you'd expect, given that he's in prison. And then he comes to chapter 4, verse 2, and the jaws just drop. Suddenly, that unspoken rule that you don't mention the tension, it's broken. That rule that's observed in wedding speeches and family gatherings the world over especially in British settings. Let's all pretend there are no problems here, nothing to see. I mean, yeah, Yodia sits the other side of church from Syntyche, and yes, they avoid each other at coffee times, and yes, you can't put them on the same team serving together, and we know not to invite their families around to the same Sunday lunch, but, but isn't it just best to leave that? I mean, a Cold War is better than the fiery alternative, isn't it? Not to pull. Not in a church. This passage, he, he grabs the nettle, names them both in public in front of the whole church, not to shame them, but to help them. See, Paul tonight is going to help us, help us with a few different problems that Christians come across in church. You'll, you'll see on the back of the service sheet there's an outline, um, and we've got three different areas of kind of Christian life. When Christians disagree, when Christians are anxious, and more generally, just when Christians are thinking. And Paul wants to help this church and help us. It really matters, matters to Paul, matters to God. Because if you remember, the whole point of Philippians, if you just turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 27, the whole point, chapter 1, verse 27, is that we would live a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ, chapter 1, verse 27, And look at the end of the verse. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's Paul's big hope. We've been saying that all through this series. His aim for the church is that they would be striving together for the gospel in the context of opposition from the culture around them. See, it really matters that the Christians in Philippi pull together in the same direction, the same mind. And nothing destroys that quicker than a major interpersonal bust-up, especially with two of the key gospel servants in the church. So I'm going to lead us in prayer for a moment for our passage and for tonight. And let me say, I'm hoping that, I don't know of any situations like this in Chalmers at the moment, but, but you may do. And if there is something like this, or just something beginning to bubble, a relationship where there's tension that is unresolved, unspoken about, if someone has a problem with someone else in this church family, well, let's pray that tonight would be the night when God's word breaks in, breaks through.
There's no better passage than Philippians 4 for that. There's no better time, actually, when we're about to share the Lord's Supper together as a church family, that reminder that we're united in Jesus and his death, one body. So let me pray for God's help as we come to his word. Our Father in heaven, we're, we're so conscious just how easily we can fall out with each other. We're sinful human beings, we're selfish human beings, we're often proud. And so we pray very much for your help tonight through this passage, through the conversations that follow after it. We pray you would help us to strive side by side for the gospel in one mind, in one spirit. We pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I did mention that that, um, Christians disagreeing is only one of the issues um, to deal with tonight. We're also going to think about anxiety and how to handle our thought lives. But before we go into any of those specifics, there is kind of one overarching thing that that runs through the whole passage, and that's where I want to start with. Um, And it's a great, this is just a great place to be, I think, for us. After 18 months of pandemic, with all the extra pressure that's put on us as a church family, all the extra anxiety that's put in our hearts, many of us, our hearts and minds. Uh, We've been strained in all sorts of ways, and I'm sad to say this if you didn't know it, but we're about to have a redevelopment project which will put strain on us. Whenever there's change in a church family, it it can be hard to deal with. Uh, We're going to be decamping from here um, for, for, who knows, nine months a year. That can be hard And actually, whenever there are choices to make, like when we come back and what colour are the walls going to be and all that kind of thing, how are we going to arrange things? Easy for people to pull in different directions. And what we need to unite us is rejoicing in the Lord. This is the thing that runs through all three of these examples. Rejoicing in the Lord. That's the kind of overarching thing. It's actually been a bit of a surprise, I think, even more of a surprise than Paul naming those two ladies, Um, a surprise that that's the heart of dealing with disputes, dealing with anxiety, and how we should shape our thought lives as Christians. Let me just show you that in the passage. So if you've got it open in front of you, page 982, if you've closed your Bibles, chapter 4, verse 4, right in the heart of our passage, chapter 4, verse 4, twice, He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That that, that idea comes up again at the start of next week's passage, 4 verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, as he goes on to talk about uh, the next passage. And actually, this, this command to rejoice in the Lord has been running all the way through this back section of Philippians. So look back to chapter 3 verse 1. 3 verse 1. Thank you for the rustling. Always encouraging to know people are turning. 3 verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Do you hear the repeated refrain? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord. That's the repeated refrain. The surprising thing, chapter 3 verse 1, just look at it again. Look what rejoicing in the Lord can do for us. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble to write these things to you, and it is safe for you. To rejoice in the Lord keeps us safe as a church family. 
wonder if you've thought about that before. I wonder if you know why that is. Let me put it like this. What keeps a marriage safe? Safe from sliding into Cold War, from sliding into adultery? Well, a spouse who's rejoicing in their partner, much more able to bear with the challenges, much less vulnerable to looking elsewhere. Though actually the Bible would say, even in a marriage, the secret to long-term success is not just rejoicing in your spouse, but rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus, who sets the example of how to love your spouse. It commands us to love, even when it hurts. That's what keeps you safe for the long haul. And what's true in a marriage is, is true of a church. We've been seeing that, actually, over the last couple of weeks, that rejoicing in Jesus keeps us safe. The last two weeks, in chapter 3, it was safe from kind of alternative messages, alternative gospels out there. These people coming along in the spiritual supermarket trying to tempt us away, trying to say, actually, you can stand before God on the basis of your own performance. Paul described them as people who put confidence in the flesh. But actually, if I'm rejoicing in Jesus, delighting in him, if I know that his righteousness is all I need before God, well, I'm kept safe from someone offering an alternative. That was the last two weeks. But in chapter 4, and this is so striking, I think, in chapter 4, we see that rejoicing in the Lord keeps us safe from other kinds of challenges in a church, safe from disagreements that can't be resolved, safe from anxieties that can't be moved past or moved through. Rejoicing in Jesus will keep us side by side for the gospel, striving together. And so it underpins everything we we say tonight. So let's dive into the three specifics, but you'll keep hopefully hearing that refrain to rejoice into the Lord, to to have that perspective on Jesus. So let's look at verse 2, these two women who are disagreeing. Verse 2, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat, of chapter 4, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now notice what Paul actually says to these two women who are falling out. Look at the basis on which he asks them to agree. to agree. Striking, he just says, agree in the Lord. Doesn't wade into what the disagreement was, who was right, who was more responsible for how it's all kind of snowballed. He just says, it's time to agree in the Lord. The phrase literally is, be of the same mind in the Lord. It's what we saw in chapter two, that first bit we read. In other words, rejoice in the Lord and find your unity in him. What were they disagreeing about? Well, we know it can't have been the gospel. We know that Paul takes a very different approach if someone's disagreeing about the gospel, that we saw that in chapter 3. and He would weigh in and pick a side when it comes to that. So it's not a gospel disagreement, but if you've been around churches for any period of time, you know that Christians can find all sorts of things to disagree about. I mean, it could be anything. It could be the style of music, the time of the service, the color of the walls, uh, especially when there's change. I mentioned that, building redevelopment. It's very easy for, for there to be as many opinions as there are people, and, and those disagreements can grow arms and legs easily. I think some of the sharpest disagreements can come when a church is trying to push forward for the gospel, 
where there are different views about strategy, what's the best approach to take? Especially when the culture around is hostile. So how front foot should we be in our response to the culture around us? What should we prioritise in the budget? Where should we plant a church and when? How many risks should we take for the gospel? Who should we partner with? How fast should we seek to grow? We know of these two women that they served alongside Paul for the gospel. Maybe they both had a really strong sense of what the right thing to do was in a particular church decision, and they disagreed. Well, whatever it was, Paul says, agree in the Lord. It's time to let go. Let go of the disagreement because you're grabbing hold of Christ. Rejoice in the Lord and what you have in common in him, not whatever it was you weren't seeing eye to eye on. Let me say, in in situations like this I've witnessed over the years or been part of, I can testify it's profoundly helpful to ask yourself the simple question, does this really matter more than the unity we have in Jesus? Does it really matter more than striving side by side for the gospel? Even if I think I'm right, even if I feel I've been wronged or hurt, even if I feel I'm being overlooked or sidelined unfairly, does, does any of that actually, my opinion, my pride, my, my service, does any of it matter more than the Lord Jesus and the unity of his people in gospel service? It's just tremendously helpful to, to consider the issue in the Lord, rejoicing in him, focused on him and his example. Actually, even with that, sometimes it's really hard to get started. Sometimes we think, well, the other person should budge, not me. They should say sorry first. Sometimes we need a bit of extra support to deal with the disagreements once it's got deep and tense. Paul the pastor knows that, and so verse 3 He encourages someone else to get involved. Verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's not clear whether Paul has a specific person in mind or if he's just inviting anyone in the church who could get involved to step in and help this situation. Often when there's been a fallout, a third party is really needed to help uh, both individuals have the right perspective. And it may be tonight. Maybe there's someone who's been sitting on attention with someone else, and tonight you think, I need to do something about this. It may be, though, that someone is here aware of attention between two others, two friends. It might be time to get involved to say, look, we belong in one body. We're united in Jesus, in his death at the cross that we'll celebrate later. We need to pull together. Because, end of verse 3, what we have in common, names written in the book of life, what we have in common is much bigger than what we're disagreeing about. Now, that's really hard. It's really hard to do. It's really hard to help people with. But that's why, verse 4, we need to rejoice in the Lord always. 
And Paul's talking from experience here. Do you remember in chapter 1, there were people who were, who were out of ambition and rivalry at Paul? In chapter 1, they were, they were preaching to give him a difficult time. And do you know what he did? Well, he didn't get bitter stuck in his cell. He rejoiced that Christ was being preached. See, if my highest joy is found in Jesus, not my own reputation, my own being vindicated or proven right or getting my way or doing the service role I want to do or whatever else, if my top joy is Jesus, I can hold looser to other things in church life. That's what enables us, verse 5, to let our reasonableness, (laughs) I mean, that's a word no one uses, is it? But it's a kind of gracious forbearance, a kind of tolerance, a willingness to take the hit. When you rejoice in Jesus, you can be like that. Not a grumbler, but gracious with people. It's all the attitudes we had in that first reading from chapter 2. Things like, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And of course, where does that thinking come from? Or straight from Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, this is chapter 2 again, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Rejoice in that, Lord. And if we do, we'll find that what matters in church relationships, even difficult church relationships, starts to look really different. That's point one. When Christians disagree, they need to work to agree in the Lord, often with help. Let me say, I'm so glad this is here, because one of the saddest things I find in ministry is hearing of churches that are falling out with themselves. It's so sad. But it need not happen God's given us everything we need here to strive together for the gospel. That's point one. Now point two. Point two is no less practical or relevant to everyday church life, and and perhaps acutely so 18 months into a pandemic. Point two tackles what to do when Christians are anxious. And just say, I'm going to give more time to this than point three, so don't worry if you're worried about how long we're going Point two, what to do when Christians are anxious. This is verses four to seven. And the basic answer is we need to pray with thanksgiving to the Lord. Notice, again, the key perspective of looking to the Lord, factoring the Lord Jesus into our thinking. It's there again, verse five, the Lord is at hand. So let's, let's think through the implications. Well, therefore, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. What does it mean the Lord is at hand? Well, it could just be saying that the Lord is going to return. The Lord Jesus is returning. And Paul has referred to that earlier in the letter. He himself is looking forward to that day. But I also think it's that he's here with us with ears open, ready to hear our prayer, strengthening us with the power of his resurrection even now. I think both those things. Keep in mind, Jesus is coming back and he can help me in the meantime. That's what's keeping Paul going in a Roman jail cell. Now, when we think about anxiety, 
and Paul, we mustn't think that he's some kind of robo-saint, kind of apostolic automaton who just kind of doesn't have any emotions, just plows on with truth, 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 and never feels anything. It's just not true. He's not a robo-saint, he's a human being. Next week, we're going to see that he had to learn the secret of contentment. didn't come naturally. In fact, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 28, just have a look back. Chapter 2, verse 28, he was really eager to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. Why? Well, so that they may rejoice at seeing him again. And listen to this, the end of verse 28, and that I may be less anxious. Paul struggled with anxiety, wondered how the churches that he couldn't visit were getting on, wondered if the Philippians would be worrying about Epaphroditus. He knows what it is to be anxious, but he knows what to do with his anxiety. That's the difference. So let's learn with him. Just look at the steps in verses four to six. Uh, sorry, um, six to seven. As we as we tackle this, I want you just to take a moment just to compile a kind of mental list of your top anxieties at the moment. For some of us, they'll they'll already be there. For you, don't need to be asked to do that. They're just there all the time. For others, we may need to just take a moment. What are the kind of major anxieties that are bubbling along in your mind and heart? And there's so much you could choose from, isn't there, in a fallen world? Health, family, church life, work life, housing situations, the future, the present, the the past, situation in the UK at the moment or in Scotland or around the globe. I mean, I'm a natural warrior myself, so I know there's a lot to choose from. Okay, you got that list in your head. Then consider whether they're covered by what Paul says here. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's totally comprehensive, isn't it, in scope? Now, of course, in the Philippian church, there were lots of reasons to be anxious. I mean, two of its keenest and most prominent members had fallen out publicly. I mean, that's going to create anxiety in a church. What's going to happen? Are we going to survive? But that's not the only thing to be anxious about. We know that they faced opposition to their gospel message, like Paul is experiencing himself. He's in a Roman prison for proclaiming Jesus. They're in a Roman colony and trying to proclaim Jesus. They're trying to say that citizenship in heaven is more important than citizenship in Rome. It's not an easy thing to say in the Roman Empire. Easy to be anxious about the opposition and suffering that will come by saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And of course, that's no different in secular Scotland with its ever less tolerant approach to freedoms of speech and thought, religion and witness. I mean, as the community around us in Morningside gets gets kind of more used to what we stand for and the, the message we proclaim from the Bible, will there be more opposition? When we move venue, will there be opposition? Plenty to be anxious about. And there were other things. Uh, They'd heard that Epaphroditus was ill to the point of death. They knew that Paul was in prison and needed more practical support. There's plenty to be anxious about. There always is, both in the world generally and extra anxieties when we strive for the gospel side by side. But every single anxiety is covered by verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The point is, it's always right to take anxieties to the Lord. Any anxiety. It's always right and healthy to pray, to ask for help. That's why he uses those words prayer, supplication, requests. They're kind of asking for help language. Both for the circumstances to change and for our anxiety to change. But strikingly, it's not just praying for help. For lots of us, that comes naturally, actually, when we're worried. Help me, Lord. But notice he says, pray with thanksgiving. That doesn't come naturally, often. I think that's there because it helps put anxiety in perspective. In the perspective of rejoicing in the Lord. Because actually, however bad things are for a Christian, they could even be locked up in a filthy Roman prison, there's still things to be thankful for. Paul knows that. He's modelling it. He's rejoicing in the gospel despite his chains. And I assume he got to that point, not because he's a robot, but because he's been praying about his anxieties, disciplining himself to actually think of and name things he's thankful for despite the difficulties. And certainly for me as a natural warrior, I find I have to remember and apply these verses over and over again. Sometimes to the same anxieties, sometimes the same week, sometimes the same day. I need to pray again. It's not always a kind of one-hit wonder. Oh, that one's done. Leave that now. (laughs) Now, I am aware that anxiety can be linked to or, or indicative of serious mental health conditions. And of course, sometimes medical support is required alongside this spiritual and practical instruction. I'm aware that in this life, with fallen bodies, some of us may never be completely free of that gnawing sense of dread. But actually, even in the most acute case of anxiety, this command still applies if you're a Christian. We should be praying to the Lord for help with thanksgiving. If we're struggling too much to do that ourselves, if we feel, "I I just haven't got the strength, and sometimes when people are really suffering and struggling, they don't have the strength, Or then ask someone to pray with you, pray for you. Because there is a genuine promise in verse 7 that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the kind of circumstance-confounding peace that Paul had when he was locked up. He actually had it even back in, when he first preached in Philippi, he was put in jail for preaching Jesus there, and the guards found him and Silas singing at night, singing hymns. And now in a Roman prison, the whole imperial guard are starting to notice there's something different about this prisoner, peace in his heart. The language actually here is is that God's peace will garrison our hearts and minds, kind of fortify them. And it is beyond understanding. It it doesn't match what you'd expect from the circumstances. Notice what the promise isn't. It's not saying when you pray about anxieties, the situation will always get sorted. Sometimes wonderfully that happens. I had a couple of answer prayers last week like that. Conversations I was significantly worried about 
prayed about and then remarkably providentially resolved the day I prayed. But it's not always like that. That's not the promise. The promise is not that the problem goes away, but the peace of God moves in, makes its fortifications in our hearts and minds. I think part of how that happens is that, it, that God reminds us that we are actually safe, ultimately, in Christ. See, if, like me, you're one of those anxiety-prone people, you may find yourselves thinking out worst-case scenarios, kind of catastrophizing and thinking of all the things that could go wrong. And of course, it's helpful to say common sense interrogates those thoughts and says, well, they're, they're actually quite unlikely. But rejoicing in the Lord is more powerful than that. Rejoicing in the Lord, praying to him about those anxieties provides stronger fortifications because it reminds me that actually if the worst did happen, Jesus would still be Lord. I would still be forgiven. I'd be safe for eternity. Whatever winds may buffet, it is well with my soul, as the hymn goes. If we did get COVID, if it became serious COVID, if it became long COVID, life could be radically affected, loved ones could be radically effective. Of course, it's wise to do what we can to avoid that. But even in the worst case scenario, Jesus is still Lord and his death keeps us eternally safe and he's coming home to get us. You may think that sounds really glib, me saying out here, perfectly healthy, perfectly safe, but Paul is sitting on death row. He's thinking with exactly this mindset. He said it in chapter one, even if I'm sentenced to death, well, that just means I'm going to meet Christ, to live as Christ, to die as gain. The one thing Paul won't allow himself to do, and he'd urge us not to do, is to stop striving for the gospel side by side with other Christians. And anxiety can do that, can't it? it, it like disunity or disagreements, it can kind of rob a church of its gospel impetus. It can fracture us, distract us, cause us to look inwards. That's true of disagreements. It can be true of risk and anxiety. We can be paralyzed by the multiple threats that are out there. Now, I'm not just talking about COVID. If we're too public about the gospel, well, we might then face opposition. If, um, if we increase our community outreach, well, it will increase again. If we take more staff on, we'll be stretched financially. If we ever try and plant a church down the line, we'll be, we'll be less secure as a church at, at, at Chalmers. But the call of the Lord Jesus is really clear. Strive side by side for the gospel. Not a call to be foolish, but a call to trust him. Not be ruled by anxiety, but ruled by him as Lord. I am, I am saying that as someone who finds it really hard. I've said I'm naturally risk averse. At the church I was at in London, uh, we were in a terrorist hotspot and, and had some high-profile outreach that may have 
made us the target as well. And the church had been bombed twice by the RRA, not, not bombing us, but just bombing other buildings around that was quite close. And there was always a possibility of a knife or gun attack coming to the church, um, which then happened on London Bridge, just, just like 300 yards, 500 yards away. I found all that quite stressful, um, as you can maybe imagine, with being a warrior. I was aware on Sunday always that the risk of a suspect package. Um, I'd, I'd run the worst-case scenario in my mind of what would I do as a staff member if there was a knife or gun attack at our door. But the New Testament is really clear and consistent that the right thing to do until Jesus returns is to keep meeting and to strive for the gospel side by side. And so I'd often be on my bike, on the way, and on, my, on the train, praying, just praying for courage, praying for bravery, praying that I wouldn't be so focused on the anxieties that I missed the people in front of me. Just to mention the elephant in the room, am I saying this? Am I talking specifically to those who are finding it really difficult to come back to church because of COVID? Yes, but not only to those people. Because actually Paul is talking to all of us here. And there are multiple anxieties in a fallen world, especially when we reach out with the gospel. Some of us in the room are anxious being here. But Paul wants to help us all. He wants us not to be paralyzed by the power of fear and worry. He wants us to lean on the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, and so benefit from this peace. That's point two. When Christians are anxious, we need to pray with thanksgiving to the Lord. Finally, much more briefly, what if we're struggling with this idea? Well, Paul ends this passage wanting to address what we spend our time thinking about. This is verses eight and nine, eight to nine. I've, I've said we need to meditate on the Lord's wonderful example. I think that is what verse eight is talking about. So verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, by this point in Philippians, we know all too well that the one who's wholly true, lovely, honorable, pure, commendable is the Lord Jesus. That's who Paul spends his time thinking about. It's what they've learned from Paul, verse 9, and seen in him the same servant example, um, kind of Christ's pattern of life echoed in Paul's life. And so this command is quite simply, as Christians, telling us to fill our minds with Jesus and the example he sets. It's really struck me that this comes after the issues of disagreement and anxiety. Because if you've ever fallen out with someone or ever been worried about something, you'll know that the tendency is to turn that over and over and over in our minds. Have you done that? That person, that situation, whether it's imagining how to get your own back or how to say your piece, or doing that kind of worst-case scenario thing on anxieties that I was mentioning. Paul says, fill your thoughts with, with something else. Notice he doesn't say, distract yourself with some escapism. I've tried that, the kind of Netflix approach. Oh, this, I'm so worried about this thing on my mind, I just need to kind of push it to one side with, um, with some, some um, box sets. Problem is, as soon as the program finishes, it all just floods back in, doesn't it? Paul says, fill your minds with Jesus. 
Think about how truthful he is, how wonderful he is, how pure, how excellent. Think about how he stooped down to save us in humility. Think about he's now exalted at the right hand of the Father. Think about how he's returning to come and get us. Think about him. And of course, that's what Paul's doing throughout this letter, throughout his imprisonment. It's actually his definition of maturity, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago. Looking forwards, pressing on to know Jesus better, to look forward to his return. And so Paul ends, verse 9, saying, okay, time now to put this into practice. See, it's one thing seeing Paul's example, learning from him. It's one thing hearing a sermon on Philippians 4. It's another thing putting it into practice. It's time tonight. If something in this passage has struck you, if there's a tense relationship, it's time to go and sort it out. If you're aware of a Christian who needs help with one of those relationships, it's time to go and help them. If you're struggling with anxieties, it's time to sit down and pray or to get someone to pray with you, perhaps before you leave the building. Paul says, now's the time to practice these things and then the God of peace will be with us. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that is just accurate, incisive. It it diagnoses us, our hearts, our tendencies. And thank you that it helps us. Thank you that you provide us just the practical help we need. Father, we pray for us as a church family that if there are tensions out there, that you would help us to put into practice what Paul says here. Pray for the many of us who battle anxieties daily. You'd help us to put into practice what Paul says here. And for all of us, Lord, in our thought lives, we're bombarded by so many other things competing for our attention. We do pray you'd help us to fill our minds with the Lord Jesus to rejoice in him, knowing that keeps us safe. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.